HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm pleased to have Mary Dale DeBoer, founder and director of Fresh Advantage, a consultancy providing guidance on food system issues, as my guest. For more than two decades, Marydale has been applying her legal training and wide-ranging work experience to transformation and organizational approaches to food, particularly in hospital and healthcare settings, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Marydale, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. I'm delighted to be here. We're very excited to have you. So I wanted to start out uh, hearing a little bit about more about your consultancy practice. I know that you've developed a specific focus on the integration of healthcare delivery systems. I believe, which really just means uh, doctors and hospitals and and how they work, um, and making the connection between that and food-related issues. So what first led you to think about this? Well, my first uh, involvement in the what I perceive to be a great need to really integrate food and nutrition into the healthcare and medical practice paradigm occurred about a decade ago when I was a senior executive at a small community hospital in Northwest Connecticut. At that time, I had a wide portfolio of things that included running the foundation, overseeing the community benefit program, and overseeing patient satisfaction. And I looked around, and the first thing that struck me so profoundly was that the food service, what we were offering to patients, visitors, and employees, was, shall I say politely, greatly lacking in terms of nutritional and taste quality. So at that time, a very progressive CEO, a fellow named Dr. Joel Frolkus, who is uh, now at Harvard, actually, but he and I agreed that we really had to start with a complete revamp. If we were going to address patient 
satisfaction. And if we were going to look at community health in a broader way, we ought to really lead with changing our food system, creating a healthy food hub in the hospital, and then developing programs that would be patient-specific, and then further on down the line, programs in the community that were focused on disease prevention. And that's what we did in a multi-step process over a period of about three years. We retained a new vendor. We completely revamped our menu and selections, and importantly, we reduced the number of choices. I think if any of your listeners have been hospital patients back in the day, you would get a list of things that you could hardly read and had to choose from many different items on a menu, which is very difficult. We simplified it. We said we're going to put the money into the ingredients. We're going to simplify this and offer people good food sourced regionally and locally when we could. We went within six months from a patient satisfaction uh, score of 30% to 99% patient satisfaction with the food program. Which is a pretty incredible outcome. And I think it's, I mean, I want to ask you about moving from more choices to less choices because this is something that I think comes up in the public health dialogue around food that choice is um, the be- for the benefit of the consumer and that uh, restricting choice is something that you know ultimately hurts consumers or patients. And you were really looking at this from a consumer satisfaction standpoint. So how did you make that determination and was that something that you were concerned about? Well, first of all, we were, t- we're talking about with the with respect to patient food service, we're talking about a captive population that doesn't feel real well, right? They're in the hospital for a reason, in an acute care situation for a reason. So that's a modifier that we should keep in mind in this discussion. We wanted to make things simple because we felt that the focus on wholesome was the most important and we could have certain basic offerings with options on, what shall I say, around the edges with salad or things that we could add to salad or a variety of soups, but that when you're in a situation like that that's budget sensitive, you have to make the judgment call somewhere, and we felt that it was so important to have fresh, organic if possible, locally sourced ingredients and give people a couple of choices, but that would be so rewarding and delicious that that would be satisfactory. In the context of the cafeteria, the retail cafeteria, we did the same thing um, to a lesser extent. We had a few more choices there. But what we found is people, we did have pushback at first. Um, People wanted a wide variety of things. But when we did a lot of education about what we were doing, and we had a real culinarian as a chef, the food was so good that it became best place in town to eat. In fact, the New York Times did an article about how we defied this this stereotype. So people came to appreciate quality and taste. The variety came in when we had a robust salad bar with lots of options. But in terms of the core entree offerings, it really did work, but it was accompanied by a very robust education and marketing campaign. So I think there's so many lessons in that that I could probably ask you just about that one example, but I want to move on because you mentioned that you, uh, during that time, also oversaw the hospital's community benefits program, which is something we want to talk about more today and how that, um, not, how that program can be connected to food. So can you explain, I guess, in the first instance, what community benefits uh, are in, the, in their application to nonprofit hospitals? 
Yes, um, simply put, community benefit is a requirement within the IRS code that applies to nonprofit hospitals that are exempt from taxation at the federal level, but also that, that moves down to state and local levels, real estate, property taxes, things the like. And the community benefit requirement is meant to focus the hospitals on the fact that this is a contract of sorts, a social contract, that in exchange for relief from taxation, there's an obligation to serve the community in the broadest sense. So that, uh, that requirement was put into place at first in 1969. Over the years, there was some concern in Congress about that, specifically Senator Grassley held a series of hearings, that hospitals were not fulfilling that obligation, that responsibility. And this led to a lot of robust debate in Congress and eventually led to a new provision in the Affordable Care Act enacted in 2010 that greatly strengthened the requirement, gave some real direction to hospitals about the methods that they had to employ to address community benefit and the kinds of evaluation reporting that they need to do. When I was working at the hospital, I noticed that we were sort of scattershot on this, that we were sort of running around doing a lot of different things, and there was no theme, there was no strategic plan with what are we going to do? We have this obligation. How do we really use it as a part of our overall nonprofit business endeavor? So I reorganized thinking around that, and there were lots of people involved in my teams that were very committed. And I said, let's consolidate our approach on things that are really a problem. We have malnutrition in seniors. We have kids in the pediatric practice who are starting to show signs of prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. Let's organize and consolidate resources rather than doing a sort of a sprinkling of largesse, if you will. Well, and I, I actually just community want, organization. I want to interject but, just for one second because community benefit sounds sort of vague, but it actually amounts to dollars in a lot of instances, right? So it's actually funding that the hospital yes. is giving back to the community. It's both. It's funding and, and in-kind. So there's a lot of assessment that you can do of if, you're, if your staff, my dietitians, would go in the community as part of this new strategic approach Great. and work with day camps and children. So those are also things that, quote, count on your 990 Schedule H. Great. But it is also direct outlays of money for sure. And so you started to rethink this when you were working as a hospital administrator? Yes. And take and a... re- rethinking it so we would be impactful. If this, is, uh, if this is a requirement that we're to serve our communities because we have the privilege of tax exemption, how do we do that really well? And so we understand that a recent uh, update to IRS guidance has created a new opportunity for using the community benefit program to really impact food systems. And I think this is definitely not intuitive for those of us who think about food policy and food systems issues a lot, what the IRS might have to do to do with this. So can you explain a little bit um, what that is, and then we can talk more about how it might um, be used by hospitals? Exactly. So since the enactment um, in the Affordable Care Act of the legislative the statutory language that says, okay, now we're going to get a little more serious here about this community benefit. And I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing legal language to make it a little more understandable to your listeners. But we, we want to strengthen the process. So the 
legislation requires a community health needs assessment. Good thing. That means you have to really get organized and do some analytics, both quantitative and qualitative. If you're a hospital administrator and whoever is on your staff should do this. So that's an organizing, organizing mechanism, if you will. Very helpful. And then there's priority setting, then a requirement for an implementation plan, and a requirement for ongoing evaluation and reporting of impact. So that really created a regulatory framework where there was none, if you will. And there's a three-year cycle to those steps that were articulated. It is the internal revenue services responsibility as the implementing agency of that statutory provision to write the rules that sort of amplify the meaning. I want to mention right here something very important, that the policy underlying these new additions to the community benefit requirement is really consistent with the whole thrust of the ACA itself, which contains important provisions about population health, disease prevention, and addressing the root causes of disease. So there is, if you will, thematic connection between the other provisions of a very complex law, which we're working hard to see implemented, and there's some controversy. But this community benefit requirement is consistent with the overall policy thrust of that law. So So you mean putting some emphasis on preventative approaches and not only clinical interventions? Yes. Yes, exactly. We have a prevention fund provision in the ACA. We have opportunities that are created for different kinds of service delivery, and um, the federal agencies responsible for implementing that are looking at different ways to encourage population health practice and management of chronic disease. So it's really focusing, focused on a, like a new vision of what healthcare should really look like in this country. And so I, it's very important to understand that these new provisions regarding the specifics of community benefit now because of this final rule really tie in a very logical, rational way to the general direction of the ACA. So what occurred, there's a series of rulemakings to implement that statutory language. And the final rule came out and there's an opportunity for public comment. I was very involved in the public comment process with many colleagues. And it's important, you know, democracy works, so you need to participate, Mm -hmm. and many people did. And so we had something positive emerge in that in the rules, the IRS listened to those of us who commented when we said, when you're doing a community health needs assessment, you need to look at things like the social determinants of disease, things like inadequate nutrition, things like poor housing that lead to asthma in children and adults. So by calling those out in the final rule in response to comments, we really see a broader vision articulated beyond the provision of technical clinical care, which is what hospitals are used to thinking about when they think about community benefit. Well, there's charity care and there's, you know, clinical care and we should do this, that, and the other thing. This really pulls in by offering the examples wait, this is a bigger idea here with respect to community benefit. There are other things we need to focus on. They're important, and we encourage you to do so. The importance of that is that 
it gives assurance to hospitals that that direction will be acceptable, and when they report on their 990s, these things will, quote, count in Great. value. Great. So I want to take a quick break and then come back and talk more about what these things or the type of programs that hospitals can actually do um, Maybe We'll take a quick break and be back. You are listening to Pale Blue by The Landing. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. on Eating Matters with Mary Dale DeBoer. And Mary Dale, we were just talking about how new guidance from the IRS clarifies that hospitals really can put a focus on nonprofit hospitals that are obligated to give back to their community, can really think about uh, food access and social determinants of health in that calculation. And I wanted to hear from you what some examples are of programs that you've seen that could be effective under this model or that you think hospitals should consider uh, in trying to make changes in issues like food access and food insecurity? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I really want to call out and, and compliment and give credit to some organizations that have actually been doing this work before we had this development and this clarifying language in the IRS rule. Kaiser is doing terrific work with respect to its community benefit program. It has a grants program that is targeting nonprofits that are very, very capable of and already doing the work of expanding access, especially for people who are very insecure. They have a very good grants program. They also have a program of farmers markets at many hospitals that are not just for employees. That's the important point here. These benefits have to go to the community serve people at large and their farmers markets program is something that's probably well known by many of your listeners, but they are moving even more assertively into really targeting a grants program and working with community partners on programs that can really expand access. And we know that diet-sensitive disease, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, is just at epidemic levels in this country. So there's, you know, we stand on the shoulders of others, and Kaiser is one of them, and the Catholic Healthcare Association is one of them. They have long been interested in environmental impacts and health status. In fact, a couple years ago, they published a very nice report about what some of these initiatives could look like in a community benefit practice. I think there are enormous opportunities with respect to, let me give you a couple specifics. 
I always talk about the three levels, the multiple levels that hospitals can work on this. First of all, using your own assets. One of the things we did at the Connecticut Hospital where I was an executive to respond to what we identified as a very serious problem with elder malnutrition, we actually did looked at some data about our who was returning to the hospital, who was relapsing with illness. And rather than being a failure to take medication, we found out that people were hungry and they were dehydrated. So we used our downtime in our cafeteria, four to six, and I was looking around and saying, wait a minute, chef, everybody's kind of standing around here waiting for the next thing to happen. Why don't we use this time to create a senior supper program? Why don't we work very targeted you know, mechanics and logistics with the senior centers in the communities we serve. Let's get a little grant for a bus service, and let's bring folks in for $5, a beautiful meal, offer many amenities and activities and discussions, make sure that folks have a really solid meal. And it worked really well. So we were using labor that we were already paying for. We were expanding our reach into the community, we didn't charge what it cost. We had to underwrite. It was about $6.85. So the difference in what it cost us to provide it was something for which we could was community benefit investment. We could take credit. So that was a very, very modest use of our own asset. I happen to think hospital food services are like totally, you know, it's, they're, they're a wasting asset in many respects, and I think they can be a real working asset. So that's one you know, I, I actually recall I met you at a convening of government officials where you spoke about this, and I remember you speaking about that particular um, oh, intervention really? with a lot of passion. And I was curious, I'm curious listening to you talk about it now, how you did identify the senior hunger as such an issue in your community. Was that part of a needs assessment? Uh, that, that was actually a part of looking at our inpatient data. And we noticed that we had people coming in frequently relapsing with a pneumonia or something. And I said, wait a minute, why is this happening? And I said, I, I, the dietitians, you really need to, I want everybody worked up. Like, there's something's going on here with why people are coming back. And it didn't occur to the clinicians that it could be something other than, you know, not being able to take the meds or whatnot. And what we found out was when we went back in with this informal survey is that they were actually really malnourished on admission, people over 65, and it just got worse if they had a broken hip or a pneumonia. So by really part, and there were some other things we did with senior centers, I should add, which, can, you know, if people want to follow up on my website, I do blogs about this. But we did it from that. It would be brilliant to make it a part of the CHNA process now that it's a blanket federal requirement, and there are ways you can do that. There are standing data platforms that can be accessed. CHNA.org is a good one. Policy map or the reinvestment fund. There are now a lot of GIS data platforms where we can get information on food insecurity at the more macro level. So even though I did it because I was observing something, there are other ways to go about doing it now many years later. And you mean that hospitals could use to, to drive uh, their decision? They should be using these data platforms, these quantitative data platforms. Great. And then sort of then building on it with more qualitative look at it at the community level. So hospitals can use their existing programs right, to address or, a need. Or let this at a next level, the second level that I always, when I'm talking to hospital groups, I say, because a lot of them are reticent. They're like, wait a minute, we can't get into the food business. And I just say, stop. You don't need to. You need to think different here, like Steve Jobs said. 
and think, do I have something under my roof I could deploy and use? So there was one example right there. The second level is community partnerships. That, again, would be an investment and maybe actually donating some in-kind work of your dietitian's time or something for programs at the community benefit level, at the, at the community level. A very excellent example, I'll give you, um, there are many around the country, but in two cities in where I live in New Haven, um, City Seed, which runs our farmer's market, developed a mobile market because there are such transportation barriers to people to get to the farmer's market or get to the grocery store that City Seed developed a mobile, mobile market and goes in to certain neighborhoods where people just, they, there's not even a bus route to the store. So that is another, there's an intervention that could be replicated and funded. And the hospital helps to fund it. No, they didn't in this case, but hospitals could. Right. Another fine example is the Arcadia Sustainable Agriculture Program in Washington, D.C. has a mobile bus that they use and they go around. So there are programs out there where staff evaluation are in place. They just need to be scaled up. Okay, so that's the second level of intervention. The third level for those brave among us hospital administrators, maybe not so brave, is a more upstream investment where you take a look at there may be something like a food hub or in the case of, um, I know, out in the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union out in Colorado area has now partnering with hospitals to create a food hub so that they're generating a broad-based greater supply of healthful local regional foods. So that's more of a upstream investment. They're all options, and we don't have time today to go in quite the legal detail as to why they would qualify. But the last example I gave you is something called community building, and that indeed is something that could be recognized by the IRS as a very legitimate investment. So I do want to ask you about that. You've um, alluded to this, but... The whole issue of social determinants of health, which would include particularly as chronic disease uh, is so caused by food issues, or much of it is caused by food issues, um, which would include food. I mean, what kind of pushback, what what kind of institutional inertia and pushback is there against it? Because I can easily imagine hospital administrators, doctors, I've talked to friends who are doctors, feeling like, um, this is a lot to take on. I mean, they see patients in the clinical context, and now they need to be thinking about poverty, housing, and all of these broader issues. So um, do you hear that from practitioners? Are they concerned about their actual sphere of influence and whether or not they can effectively uh, impact these kinds of issues? Well, that's an outstanding question, and there, there's a two-part answer to that. Yes, I do hear that, and I hear it because we are now in a period of dynamic change in this country in healthcare and clinicians are being impacted from all angles. So clinicians of a certain generation who are out there dealing with all these changes, it's very difficult. We are seeing though, many of them are understanding that working in teams means that they put together a paradigm in their practice area where they have people like social workers and other people who are helping them with food insecurity screening and referral to community resources. So I see it mostly in people who've been out practicing a long time and are having a lot, seeing a lot of dislocation. I'm seeing a totally different result in my role as a lecturer at the School of Medicine at Yale. In fact, those medical students seek me out for help. And this last term, 
I was one of the faculty that taught a course called U.S. Health Justice. It was a student-designed curriculum approved by the dean where it looked at social determinants of health because those med students felt like they weren't getting enough in their curriculum. The dean approved it. We put together a faculty from across the university and, importantly, the community. Those students don't want to practice without that knowledge. One of them said to me, I've worked so hard to get into Yale Medical School. I want so much to be a doctor, but I have to learn this because I will just be using my skill and sending people back to the same circumstances that made them sick in the first place. And can I ask you, what do you tell them that they can do most effectively to impact that? Right. So we use, we use different models of change. We set examples and say, if you're in this kind of a clinical practice eventually in a community health center, what will you need in terms of team practice? And that's the way of the future. It's no more me and my doctor. I mean, we're, this whole paradigm is changing to many different paradigms. What would you do in that environment? What systems would you put in place in your community health center to address food insecurity? Okay, you would screen. Then you would work with your administration to make sure that you had personnel in place and an inventory of community resources so you could refer people to the resources they need. Many of those environments are also using community health workers. In the past, in other programs, I've, I've worked extensively with community health workers, and they and patient navigators can be the ones that do the follow-up. The person with the MD after that name doesn't have to do that. They do have to care about it. They do have to understand it will really impact the ability of the person to heal or prevent disease, but they have to use their influence and their white coat power to influence their organization to build in systems to address it and to partner with community resources. In larger, situ- in larger hospitals, there's, there's abundant resource, much more than in a federally qualified health center, where doctors can advocate that what they need to build within the hospital the, infra- the human capital and infrastructure for the same kind of system of assess and refer. In New Haven, we're working with doing a huge mapping project of all of our resources so that we can provide with use of street address and zip code to service providers like disability counselors, social workers in hospitals, working with an individual to actually find resources in the community for that individual depending on where they're living. So systems are coming up and things are bubbling up from the grassroots that are going to make this easier for hospitals. They just have to have the patients to care about it in the first place, Mm -hmm. get a leader, and then meet and get to know the community groups that can help them accomplish this. And as you're not saying, expected to go into a new business. You and, know? Right. And doctors can play a really important role in uh, advocating for that. Um, huge. So we, we're huge. just about out of time. I just want to ask you one other question that I love to hear from people who have been working on food system issues for a long time. How does your work impact what you eat? Oh, very interesting. Um, I really rarely eat meat unless I can get it from a farmer I know first of all. And I eat only whole foods. I was a pretty healthy eater. I've cared about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I always cook for myself because that's part of the beauty of it, isn't it? Worth to to live by and try and have fun doing it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's a lot more to it than the narrow focus I've been talking about. You know, it sounds so technical what I've been talking with you and your listeners about, but there's joy in this. There's culture and we need to claim that. 
Yes. Well, that's why we like to go to that question at the end, because we stay on the wonky side of things for a lot of the yeah. show. <laughs> but that's, um, <laughs> that's look, the devil's in the details. So we need to hear about that. Um, well, so yeah. that's Mary Dale DeBoer. Mary Dale, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. She's the founder and director of Fresh Advantage. I really appreciate you sharing your insights from your years and years of work on this. And it'll be exciting to see how this new development unfolds. Thank you, Kim. My pleasure. And that brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. It's our first show in our second season here on Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank our new assistant producer, Talia Rolf, for her help with this program. I'm thrilled to have her on board. And until next week, we'll be back then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.